Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I can't say that I have a list of favorite commencement speeches, but I can tell you my favorite one. It was given by the writer David Foster Wallace in 2005 at Kenyon College. He started his talk with a parable about some fish. There are these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, Morning, boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, And then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the hell is water? (laughs) The point of that story, as Wallace says, is that the most obvious, important realities are often the ones that are hardest to see and talk about. He's right, of course. And what he says doesn't just apply to the day-to-day trenches of adult existence, as he put it. It also applies to the culture we swim in every day. What we call normal, what we consider healthy, we don't think very much about these things. We just take them for granted. And that kind of blindness can be deadly. I'm Sean Elling, and this is The Gray Area. My guest today is Dr. Gabor Mate. He's a celebrated speaker and the author of several best-selling books on addiction, stress, and childhood development. His newest book, which he wrote with his son, Daniel Mate, is called The Myth of Normal. I'm just gonna be honest and say, this is one of the best books I've read in a long time. And the reason is somewhat personal. I've had a rough few months, health-wise, nothing too serious. I'm not dying, but it's been challenging. This book gave me a language for thinking about some deeper things that might be wrong. And I suspect, I hope, it'll give many others the same thing. So I invited Dr. Mate onto the show to talk about the book and his argument that our culture shapes our well-being, emotionally and physically, in all kinds of ways. And if we want to think seriously about what it means to be healthy, we have to think about more than just our physical bodies. This is something we don't really do in the Western world. But there's something of a paradox here. We're so obsessed with health, and yet so many of us aren't well. Well, the obsession with health reflects the lack of it. The analogy that we use in introduction is uh, the very word culture itself is the template or the brew in which we grow or develop, thrive or suffer. In a laboratory, when you grow microorganisms, you're culturing them in a brew or a broth. If they're thriving, it's a healthy broth. If they're dying or getting sick in large numbers, it's a toxic culture. And what I'm saying about our culture for human beings is we live in a culture. We are also 
biological organisms. In fact, we're biological organisms whose biology is very much affected by our emotions, our psychology, our relationships, and our social setting. And therefore, if in those relationships, in that social setting, a lot of us are suffering, it's because we're living in a toxic culture. How do you think about this mind-body connection as it relates to physical health? I mean, what's the right way to think about the link between something like stress and chronic disease, for instance? It's both complex and simple. The simple way to put it is that there's no mind-body connection. Because to speak about connection means two separate things are connected. But mind and body are not separable. It's one holistic unit. This is not a spiritual insight, some kind of a new age fantasy. This is science. Mind and body in a live human being are inseparable. And so that what happens in our minds affects our bodies. And certainly what affects our bodies will certainly affect our minds. So, for example, if you get flu or COVID, that's going to affect your mind. You're not going to feel as happy, as joyful. You might feel quite despondent because of the physiology of your body is affecting the mind. Vice versa, what happens in our minds has a direct impact on our physiology. When you're happy, you have one set of hormonal and neurological patterns in your body. When you're depressed, just to give two extreme examples, you have a totally different set of physiological events happening in your body, in your heart, in your lungs, in your guts, in your nervous system. So when it comes to chronic illness, when people's minds are confused and conflicted, when people are governed by unconscious dynamics that they're not even aware of, that'll have an impact on their physiology. As a physician, when I look at chronic illness, and who gets chronic illness? Well, you can have both social parameters and personal ones. Socially, who gets ill more likely are the people that experience more stress socially. So that's why if you look at the life expectancy or disease patterns of Americans of color, they're under much greater stress and biologically they age faster and they have high blood pressure more often and they have a higher risk of strokes and autoimmune disease and so on. Similar in Canada, it's the indigenous population, for example. Or if you look at women, they have more autoimmune disease than men do. So these social parameters of gender or color or social class have a huge impact on people's health. In the individual sense, there are certain personality patterns that create stress in your life. And those patterns of personality that create stress in your life also make it more likely that you're going to get diseases related to stress, such as autoimmune disease, such as malignancy, such as uh, mental health conditions, and so on. And those personality patterns are not inborn in anybody. They are the reflections of childhood experience. Some of those stats on women in particular, on women and chronic disease, autoimmune diseases in particular, it's just startling. And I don't think most people are aware of them. I certainly wasn't. Mm. And it's definitely screaming something. I don't know that it's being heard or understood, but it's it really is astonishing and disturbing. Well, my profession, the medical profession, which is for all its incredible achievements, is completely grounded, in fact, I say mired in a mind-body separation ideology, has no understanding of chronic illness. I mean, the best we can do is to mitigate the symptoms. And Medically, it's been well understood for a long time that women have 70 or 80% of autoimmune disease, 
of a condition like lupus, if you're a woman, your chances are nine times greater than a man of getting systemic lupus, which is an autoimmune disease, a life-threatening one. But the medical profession, precisely because it separates the mind from body, has got no explanation for it. But actually, if you understand the documented relationship between stress and autoimmune disease, why is it that women, and specifically women of color, are at much higher risk for autoimmune disease? It's because they're under much greater stress. Now, specifically, the stress that women are under is that, as the New York Times article put it during COVID, their society is shock absorbers. They soak up, they absorb the stresses of their families and also of their men very often. And so that in a relationship, very often it's the woman who is the emotional glue, who provides the emotional connective tissue. Well, it so happens that autoimmune diseases are diseases of connective tissue. So if women function as the social connective tissue, then in a toxic culture, they're also going to have more connective tissue diseases, diseases that affect their joints, their ligaments, their skin, the connective tissue in their bodies. And for people who aren't familiar with the literature or the stats, I think it may help to say a bit about what physical and psychological ailments are on the rise. I mean, you talk about depression and suicide and young people skyrocketing in Canada, depression and anxiety are the fastest growing diagnoses, yeah. something I didn't know. Over 20% of adults in the U.S. suffered an episode of mental illness in 2019, and that's before the pandemic. Yes, and within the last six months, there were agonized articles in both New Yorker magazine and New York Times about the rising rate of childhood suicides, which in the view of the writers and the so-called experts that they consulted is a big mystery. But if I look at the nature of this culture and what it does to children, to me it's no mystery whatsoever. In fact, it's what one would predict given today's circumstances. So yeah, all these statistics are quite shocking. Look at the number of overdoses in the United States last year. Over 100,000 people died of opiate overdoses, of drug overdoses. That's almost twice as many as all the Americans who died in the Vietnam, Afghan, and Iraq wars put together. And that many died in one year of drug overdoses. Well, either we throw our hands up and we say, well, it's just an accident. It's some kind of a misfortune of fate. Or if we hew to the medical misbelief that addictions represent genetic brain diseases, in which case, why is it rising so much? Because genes don't change in a population in a few years. Or we understand that there's something about the circumstances of this culture that drive people to despair and suicide and drug use. Then now we can understand. But then we'd have to look at what conditions are driving that. I think we tend to see these sorts of things as expressions of individual maladies. That's right. When they're often manifestations of social pathologies, you know, which is why I'm pretty damn sick of some of these facile attacks on like, you know, millennials and younger people. Yeah. As though they're responsible for the culture into which they're thrown. Yeah. Yeah. It's bullshit. And it's not actually trying to understand the problem. It's just throwing darts for the sake of throwing darts. Apart from how galling it is from the ethical point of view, it's also completely unscientific. Yeah. Because human beings, like any other creature, can't be understood outside the context of their environment. To look at animals in a zoo and trying to understand the nature of animals by how they behave in a zoo tells you nothing about how they thrive in a natural environment that actually supports them. And it's the same with human beings. You're not thinking of culture as just this 
web of beliefs or practices or rituals. It's you're thinking of it in the the biological, ecological sense as this thing out of which a form of life grows. And we're such conditioned creatures, our culture, our environment. We're so embedded, we don't even recognize all the ways it shapes us, but it does. Absolutely. And what culture mostly is, is a set of relationships. What do you mean? Well, how do we relate to our families? How do we relate to other people? How do we relate to our work? How do we relate to our politics? And fundamentally, how human beings relate to each other. So, for example, in an indigenous culture, in, in most small indigenous cultures, relationships are far more communal and equal. In our society, we are told to understand that as human beings, we're by nature competitive, individualistic, greedy, and grasping, and aggressive. Well, that reflects relationships in a market-driven, elite-controlled, consumerist society, but says nothing about the nature of human beings. And yet, that way of living creates a set of relationships where people feel manipulated, they feel distrustful, they are uncertain, they never know where the next economic blow is going to come from, they don't trust each other. The rise of mistrust on all sides in this culture has been very evident, yeah. especially since COVID, but it's been happening for a long time. Yeah, yeah. I think we're so buried under the debris of our culture and its vices and values. Yeah that we scarcely know what's underneath it. You know, we, we sort of become the culture in a strange way. And if the culture is disconnected and disordered, then so are we, you know, how could we not be? Well, the culture is going to shape the views and behaviors and both conscious and unconscious values of its members. And like you're saying, if you think about how we evolved in these small tribes and actual communities and close contact with other people, this is how we live for most of our history. Our brains are wired under these conditions and life today is so deeply unnatural by comparison. And so it just stands to reason that really deep human needs aren't being met. No. How are they going to be met when the highest value is profit? As soon as that's the highest value and the people who are most successful and most powerful are the ones who make the greatest profit. And they are also, in many ways, the most admired ones. But when those are the highest values, and these are the people that get the highest accolades and are the trendsetters, what do we expect? Those employees have human needs. Those human needs include a sense of agency, a sense of meaning and purpose, a sense of belonging. They need rest. They need respect. And when they're treated like that, all that's taken away from them. Those things just aren't relevant metrics, right? I mean, you don't shy away from this. It's not so much about capitalist economic structures, but I guess partly it is. It's really about capitalist ideology, you know, consumerism. These things, they feed our pathologies and produce very twisted and impoverished conceptions of happiness and health. And it's part of why you get this obsession with status and competition and attractiveness, you know, and these things don't point us in a, in a truly like stable direction. It's very superficial and very illusory. Well, when you look at attractiveness, for example, which is a real obsession in our culture, you know, I just saw on my cell phone, there was an article from Allure magazine, I think it was, about Jennifer Aniston, you know? And here's this 53-year-old, very talented woman, but she's presented in such a sexualized way, semi-nude pictures and all this kind of stuff, you know? And she's such an icon for attractiveness. Now, what is the obsession with attractiveness? As children, we all need attention. 
positive, unconditional attention is one of the essential, non-negotiable needs of young children. Just as we have physical needs for nourishment and shelter, we also have emotional needs. One of them is attention for healthy development. Now, if we don't get the attention that we need as children just for who we are, just for existing, then we can be consumed by attracting attention. And how do we attract attention? Well, one way is to be physically attractive. So there's this incredible obsession of physical attractiveness in this culture, where people are botoxing themselves to be attractive and to pretend that they're younger than they are. All we attract attention by whatever is available to us, you know, so our smarts or our wit or our humor. I mean, look at the biographies of famous comedians like Robin Williams or Gilda Radner. You know how their humor got going? That was the way of getting their mother's attention because the personality patterns that they had to adopt as children, they didn't have their needs met, made them very successful, but they also contributed to their pathology later on. But this attracting attention by whatever we've got, you know, this whole TikTok culture, the whole culture of, of Facebook, it's all about attracting attention, pay attention to me. Why are we so driven? Because as children, we didn't get the attention that we needed. We're going to take a quick break, but when we're back, why is our conception of health so narrow in the West? Why doesn't it take into account the whole person? Support for the gray area comes from Mint Mobile. When you hear secret sauce, maybe you think of the mysterious ingredient in your favorite burger. Or perhaps it's your grandmother's terrifying meatloaf, which somehow seemed to secrete sauce. But from now on, when you hear secret sauce, I want you to think about Mint Mobile. Their secret is that they only sell wireless service online. That means they can cut the cost of retail stores and pass those savings directly to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you can get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash gray area. That's mintmobile.com slash gray area. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash gray area. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Why is the conception of health in the Western paradigm so blind to our inner lives and these connections between our emotions and our physical health? Why such resistance? If you look at great medical thinkers throughout the ages, they've always recognized the connections. The first guy who described multiple sclerosis was a French neurologist in the 19th century, and he said that this disease is driven by stress. The great Canadian-American physician, William Osler, one of the founders of Johns Hopkins, he said that rheumatoid arthritis was a disease driven by stress. A British surgeon, James Paget, whose name is still remembered in medical annals, 
said in 1870 that breast cancer has got huge emotional contributors to it in women. So on the one hand, there's these great pioneers who've recognized it, the mind-body unity, and we have, since their days, we've had decades and decades and multiple thousands of research papers showing the relationship between mind and body. And yet in the Western world, going back to ancient Greek times, Socrates criticized the doctors of his day by saying, the problem with the doctors of today is that they separate the mind from the body. So this mind-body separation is an endemic in Western culture since long before our time. Since the rise of industrial capitalism and the amazing achievements of left brain science, which are really astonishing, but we're almost a victim of our own success because we've had such successes looking just at the body and the physiological aspect of things that it, it gives it even less incentive to look at the mind connection or the mind unity. And then you look at who goes to medical school. It's a lot of really stressed, often traumatized people who training often traumatizes them. So they haven't looked at their own trauma, how they can look at their patients. And then finally, not exhaustively, but finally for this discussion, who funds medical research? People who have an opportunity to profit off the research. Who are those? Pharmaceutical companies. Now, if you're a pharmaceutical company, and if you can come up with a new version of a new antidepressant, you stand to make a lot of money. So that's the research you're going to fund and publish in the medical papers. There's no money to be made, though, from a first world company for researching the mind-body connection because that then would allow you or, in fact, drive you to deal with the trauma that caused the depression in the first place and the healing of the trauma, which if you did, you got no more pills to sell. All the money's in the treatment, right? Yeah, and, and this is the information that doctors get. Well, I, I just want to say, too, to say that something is a contributor is not the same thing as saying it's the cause. Exactly. And when you go to the doctor here, I go, no one ever asks you about childhood trauma. No one ever asks you about the strength of your social network. Or It's never about the whole person. It's too reductionist for that. It's just a physiological problem that only admits of a physiological solution. And that's it. Wherever I speak, and I speak to thousands of people at a time, I'll ask people to raise your hand if in the last five years you've been to a neurologist, a cardiologist, a gastroenterologist, an immunologist, a rheumatologist, any kind of an ologist. And, you know, most people will put their hands up, or many people would. And I say, well, keep your hand up if they ask you about childhood trauma. Nobody has their hand up. Keep your hand up if they ask you about how you feel about yourself as a human being. Nobody will have their hand up. Keep your hand up if they ask you if there's any stresses in your life, a few people will put their hands up at that point. Keep your hand up if they ask you about your spousal relationship. Very few hands. And yet these questions about our relationships and our traumas and how we feel about ourselves and what stresses are acting on us, they have everything to do why most people need to go to physicians with chronic conditions. As you said earlier, I'm not saying that these are the causes, strictly speaking, but they're major contributors, and the practical significance is not just theoretical. If somebody with rheumatoid arthritis or multiple sclerosis or almost any other chronic condition can recognize how their personal stresses and traumas contribute to the flare-up of those conditions, and if they can deal with those traumas and those personal stresses, their condition can significantly improve. So we're not just talking about theory here. Yeah, I mean, something else I didn't know until I encountered it in your book, that something like 70% of American adults are on some kind of medication. Yeah. 
And I was diagnosed with ADHD years ago. And yeah, so was I. I don't even know if it's real. I mean, part of me thinks, well, knows <laughs> I have poor impulse control and probably a, a wandering mind. And yeah, medication does help. Yeah. It has helped, although I've gotten off of it and then I've gone back on it and back and forth. But yeah. it all feels so deeply misguided and always feels like I'm treating symptoms, not causes. Well, here's the issue. So I've my first book, as you may be aware, was on ADHD, yep. titled Scattered Minds. I was in my 50s when I was diagnosed with that condition. And uh, at first, typically in medical fashion, I thought, okay, here's the explanation for my poor impulse control right. and my absent-mindedness and my tendency to tune out. But you know what? It isn't because it's very circular. So Gabor or Sean has ADHD. How do we know? Because they have wandering minds and poor impulse control. Why do they have wandering minds and poor impulse control? Because they have ADHD. How do we know they have ADHD? Because they have wandering minds, you know. Yeah, it's a lovely circle. These things don't explain anything. Yeah. They describe something. To describe my behavior and emotional dynamics, it's true to say I tend to have a wandering mind, tune out sometimes unwillingly, and have had poor impulse control. That's true. That describes something. It doesn't explain anything. Now, if you want to go to the explanation, you have to look at that person's life in a holistic context, which is what Western medicine does not do. And so therefore, it considers ADHD to be this inheritable disease. A, it's not a disease, and B, it's not genetic. What it actually is, is a response to the environment. So if you tell me you've been diagnosed with ADHD, I can tell you that your mom was a very stressed person when you were very small, maybe even when she was carrying you in the womb, because the stresses of the parents stress the infant, and how does an infant deal with stress? Well, if you and I were stressed as adults, ideally, we'd have the agency and the capacity to either change the situation or to leave it. But can you do that as a one-year-old, a two-year-old, a three-year-old, a five-year-old? You can't. So what do you do? You don't do anything. The mind automatically will protect you from the stress the only way it can, which is to tune out. And when is this tuning out happening? The tuning out is happening when your brain is developing, because that's another thing that on the one hand, we have the indubitable and nobody even questions it, is findings of modern brain science, which is that the brain develops an interaction with the environment so that the physiology of the brain, the capacity of the circuitry to have the right chemicals and the right connections develop under the impact of the environment beginning in uterus. So mothers who are stressed or depressed during pregnancy, they're more likely to have kids with ADHD because that affects the child's brain development already in the womb. What I'm saying is that ADHD, as most other mental health conditions, begins as actually a coping mechanism. The tuning out is a coping mechanism when the brain is developing, but then the brain gets wired in that tuning out mode. And now they say, you've got this brain disease. No, you don't. You've got a coping mechanism that at some point did something for you. Now it's creating problems, but you don't have a disease. And the description does not provide an explanation. The description only says, this is what it looks like. This is what it feels like. How do we deal with it? is if you look at the fundamental stresses and traumas and the patterns that they left, that's how we actually deal with it. Medications, yes, I've taken them, they've helped me. In fact, when I was writing this book, at some point I was quite lacking confidence that I could do it and I thought, okay, I'll take my stimulant again, you know? I could stand it only for one day. 
it did help me decades ago. All I did at this point is cause me side effects. And I stopped taking it after a day or two. And I wrote the book completely without medication. Well, the word you just said, trauma, yeah. is a word we've been circling a little bit here. And it is, as you know, a word that gets tossed around pretty recklessly. Yeah. And I think it's important for you to say what you think it means. I think a lot of people have a difficult time distinguishing a difficult experience, say, from a traumatizing experience, but they're not the same thing. Absolutely not. As you say, we do throw it around uh, far too casually. The examples I always use is, you know, somebody says, oh, I saw a movie last night and I was traumatized. No, you weren't. You were just upset. Or I had a fight with my spouse and it traumatized me. No, it didn't. It just made you upset. It maybe caused you some pain or some anger. But as one of my colleagues says, all trauma is stressful, but not all stress is traumatic. So that we use the word way too easily. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, what really matters, which is in medical practice, when it comes to physical and mental health conditions, when it comes to the law, looking at why people commit violent crimes, for example, or uh, looking at uh, education, where so many children are having learning difficulties and behavior problems. We don't use the word nearly enough because the average physician, lawyer, educator never gets a single lecture on trauma and its relationship to long-term behavior and emotional patterns and physical patterns, despite all the research evidence. So on the one hand, we throw it around a bit too promiscuously, and on the other hand, where it really matters, we're not even using the word at all. Now, what is trauma? Trauma simply means a wound. That's the origin of the word from the Greek. And so trauma is a psychological wound that has left an imprint in your nervous system and in your mind and very often in your body, which unhealed leaves long-term consequences in how you feel about yourself as a human being, how you see the world, how you relate to other people, how you react when things happen, yeah. how you think about things and how you behave. So trauma is, is huge in this culture because you can traumatize people by all the terrible things that happen all too often like physical, sexual, emotional abuse, addiction in the family, mental illness of family. But you can also traumatize children just by not giving them what they need, emotionally speaking. You talk about wounds, right? And what are wounds? Well, they're sensitive. Yeah. <laughs> and I find it useful, this idea of trauma as sensitivity. You know, I've often thought of myself as a very non-sensitive person. Mm. I've often looked down on people I perceive to be overly sensitive people in my life. Why did you look down upon them? Um, because I saw it as weakness. I saw it as being overly reactionary. I saw it as being insecure and protective and defensive. But it is all those things. But why are those put-downs? Because like, I misconstrued that as weakness. I see. Okay. As an inability to overcome things. And I think that's actually me. <laughs> that's why I think I'm, I'm starting to wonder if I was really completely wrong about my own self, that I'm actually extraordinarily sensitive, but I don't know how to deal with my emotions and that failure manifests in all kinds of ways. And I'm just confused about the cause. So what I hear you saying is like so many people, when you put on somebody else, it's usually because there's something in yourself that you don't want to recognize that is very similar to them. Yep. That's certainly true for me, that the more disdainful I am of somebody else, the more there's some pattern inside myself that I haven't looked at. What do they call that? Projection? I don't know if that's what that is. Yeah, projection. That's a good word, yeah. You know, I mean, I'm, <laughs> I think I've probably repressed like whole periods of my childhood and I have no idea how it affects me today, but like lots of people, I've, I've built up boundaries uh, around myself that probably protect me in some ways, but also- Keep you isolated. 
trap me and isolate me. Yeah, that's right. And so it's a kind of psychological gravity, I guess, that just kind of keeps me in place in loops. Somebody once said, what a great pleasure it is to hide and what a tragedy it is not to be found. Yeah, yeah. And these traumas, right? I mean, they show up in every corner of our lives, in our relationships in particular. And so much of the anger and resentment in relationships starts with trauma and some of its unhealthy manifestations. You know, as you know, the first chapter of the book opens with how I show up in my relationship with my wife. And yeah. I react to a very trivial stimulus as if I was a wounded infant. Because in fact, I was a wounded infant and I hadn't healed that wound yet when this event happened. We talk about triggers, to me, is an interesting word because you keep blaming people for triggering you. Not you personally, but I mean in general. We blame people for triggering us. But then I say to people, well, okay, triggered. What does that mean? What's a trigger? A trigger is a very small part of a mechanism. What there has to be there is ammunition and a huge explosive charge for that trigger to work. So if I get triggered, who's carrying the explosive? I'm the one who's carrying explosive charge. Yeah. Now I could focus on a little trigger that you instigated, or I can look at what is the explosive charge that I'm carrying. And it's much more fruitful in the vast majority of cases to ask what is my own reaction all about than to blame the other person for triggering that reaction. But judging people is so much easier, <laughs> isn't it? It's a lot much more fun for sure. <laughs> Could psychedelics be a powerful therapeutic tool? I'll ask Dr. Mate after one last short break. Let's talk a bit about psychedelics and their therapeutic potential. One of the things you say in the book is that we tend to get buried under this edifice of a conditioned personality. Yes. And there's some research suggesting that psychedelics can help us escape from some of these ingrained patterns. And they help us to see them very clearly. I wrote a first-person essay for Vox back in 2018. I, oh, yeah. I went down to this retreat center in costa rica and i did ayahuasca for the first time and it was a profound event in my life probably the second or third most profound after the birth of my kid and getting married and i wrote very openly about yeah. how powerful it was and i still get letters from people all the time asking me well how do you feel now you know four years later did all those changes hold up and the disappointing answer is and they don't want to hear it is that no no <laughs> not really i mean some of them have but it's not like pulling a lever and everything moves forever. It can throw open a door yeah. and maybe you glimpse another picture of reality or yourself. But the truth is that those thought patterns, those circuits in your brain, boy, they settle back in yeah. and it can be very painful to come to grips with that. The first time I had a psychedelic experience was uh, about 13 years ago now after my book on addiction was published. And I thought, oh my God, now I see reality. Well, 48 hours later, I was back where I started, you know. Um, the Buddha talked about what he called our habit energies. Thought habits energies are the emotional behavior and thought patterns ingrained in our bodies and minds. They're going to reassert themselves because they've been doing their job now for how many decades, you know. They're not going to disappear because you all of a sudden you had a glimpse of something that's different. Yeah. I had a psychedelic experience a couple of years ago and 
as you know, it's it's hard to talk about these things without sounding ridiculous, but it's relevant. What, what happened was I found myself kind of suspended in time, almost like outside of time, above time. And I could, there was a, a visual representation of my family line mm-hmm. over the years. And I could see these traumas being handed down like batons from generation to generation, from father to son. Yeah. And, you know, people say things like this all the time. And my grandfather was an alcoholic. My dad's an alcoholic and I'm alcoholic. I got the gene, you know, but the thing, at least for me in that experience was the thing I was seeing being passed down wasn't genes. It was trauma. So first of all, there are no genes for alcoholism. Contrary to what every area said, whenever they think they found the gene for alcoholism, two years later, they have to retract it. Our genes were set long before there was even alcohol in the world. So there's no such gene, and there's no genes for addiction. There's no genes for any particular mental health condition. Actually, that's the scientific truth, as I discuss in some detail in the book. But let me ask you a question first. Okay. You said this is going to sound ridiculous. Why do you suppose that would sound ridiculous? You were seeing reality, because what is passed on are not genes from one generation to the next, but trauma. I passed on my trauma to my kids because I couldn't help it, because I didn't know I was traumatized. I was just behaving the way I was behaving. Yeah. And that affected my children's development and self-concept and a lot of things about their lives. I wonder why would you would even uh, apply the word ridiculous to that particular insight or vision. I would say two things. A, there's nothing ridiculous about what you saw. You What you saw was scientific reality. So much research now on the multigenerational transmission of trauma. It's just a given fact. In fact, it can't be any other way. And your fear of being judged is still an imprint of your own trauma for your own childhood. This is how these traumatic imprints lead us to invalidate our own experience. Because here you are having seen a vision of reality, maybe in an unconventional way, but the, the mind works in multiple ways. And then yet some voice comes in and says, oh, this is ridiculous. Oh, no, it isn't. It's actually the truth, what you saw. I think that's probably one of my biggest fears at the moment that I may be passing down some of these same traumas to my own three-year-old son. And simply even being aware of that, even being on guard against it, may not be sufficient to stop it. Well, so look, when I parents say such things to me, I say, if you're worried about screwing up your kids, don't worry about it. Of course you are, you know? <laughs> Good. But, Good to know. But it's relative, isn't it? So let me ask you this question. Sure. Your child is three years old now, you said? Three and a half, yeah. How old were you when your parents began to reflect their own traumas? God, I don't even know. What would it have meant for you if you were three years old and your parents had put that question to themselves? I don't know how it would have felt. I probably wouldn't have understood it, but I imagine the consequences of it would have been enormous. Take away a little bit, okay? Just take away the qualification. Okay. That's the gift you're already giving to your child, a gift that you never got. Yeah, nobody's going to get it 100% right, but the more conscious we are, the more aware we are, and the more we keep monitoring ourselves, the significantly less like it is that we're going to pass on the degree of wounding that we received ourselves. So I think I would say your son is a very fortunate little fellow. This book and preparing for this conversation has got me thinking much more about parenting than I expected. And again, part of what you're always talking about as it relates to these things is the importance of having the freedom to experience all of your emotions. And I heard you saying recently how we're, we're sort of taught in this culture in a very backwards way, how to raise our kids. And you were, you were talking about Jordan Peterson. 
someone I know sent me a video of him actually giving that specific advice about when you have an angry toddler to put them aside, go sit them in a corner somewhere and tell them you can come back and join the family when you're normal. When you're normal. Yeah. And trust me, I am not in the business of taking advice from Jordan Peterson, but I was desperate because we were having a really difficult time with a two and a half year old who we were having a hard time. Yeah. And I did it. I started doing that. Okay. And in a way it did work in the immediate. Of course it did. And, you know, so look, so first of all, I totally understand it. And when we're desperate, we're driven to desperate measures. Let me ask you a question. When you were doing that to your son, how did your heart feel? If I'm being honest, um, probably in the immediate moment, I don't know that my heart felt anything, but my body felt relief because I, there was a very stressful situation and I terminated it. Yeah. And that was it. Well, here's the thing. Here's what that does. See, a, a child does have brain circuits for all kinds of emotions. And this is not just according to me, this is according to a great neuroscientist whom Peterson also quotes very selectively, by the way, who pointed out that we have brain circuits that we share with other animals. One of these brain circuits is for anger, rage. That's a necessary emotion to protect ourselves. You know, animals will show rage when they're threatened, when their boundary is being violated. And one of the essential needs of human children developmentally is to be able to experience all their emotions. That's the first point. So when you do that to a child, you will get the behavior that you want for sure. You're going to get compliance and you're going to get relief from a tense situation. That's true. But let me give you an analogy. If you and I were in a room together, and if I wanted your compliance, if your compliance was my goal, I could easily get you to comply with me. Very easily. All I'd have to do is put out a gun and point it at your head. You'd be extremely compliant. And I would have achieved my immediate goal of compliance. What would I have done for our relationship? Killed it. Exactly. So the child has a need to belong and to be accepted by the parent. The child also has a need to be able to experience their emotions. I didn't say the child has a need to be allowed to behave in any way they want to. I said the child has a need to experience all their emotions. Now, essentially what you're saying to the child with that timeout technique is, you have a choice. You can have the relationship with me, my acceptance, my approval of you, my love for you, my presence, my unconditional regard for you. You can have that, or you can have your genuine emotions, but you can't have both, not choose. So in the long term, we're training kids to get disconnected from their authentic emotions, which means that they lose themselves. That's the first thing. The second thing is, you're also teaching them that they're only acceptable under certain conditions. So they better become compliant and really worry about what other people think about them throughout their whole lives, rather than being true to themselves. Thirdly, you're destroying the trust in a relationship. Because the child on a certain level knows that their survival depends on that relationship. Now, how to deal with those behaviors? Well, when do children behave that way? When they're very frustrated. Frustration is the engine of aggression. Why is the child frustrated? When do you get frustrated? When some need of yours is not met. So if a child is continually frustrated and is throwing tantrums, you have to say, what's going on in this child's environment? that this child is reacting to. Now, when he gets angry, you can't let him throw plates. You can't let him hit his sibling if there's a sibling. You can't do that. But you can validate his emotions. You pick him up and say, you're really angry with daddy right now. 
Yeah. I get it. Well, you can be as angry as you want, but you can't be breaking that plate. That's a completely different way of dealing with it. You're not validating the behavior. You're validating the emotion. And I swear, I, that's what I've been doing more recently, in part because I heard you talk about that, and I tried it. And it was the same approach, right? Where it's, I would just sit down and say, yeah, you're really pissed off right now. I know. I feel that way all the time. I get it. Let's move through it. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, it wasn't seamless, but we did. But we did. And that's how you teach the child self-regulation, by the way. Because the first method only teaches self-repression. Now, you know what it leads to? What's another word for pushing something down? Depress. Exactly. You're forcing the child to push down their emotions. Do that a lot. That kid will be diagnosed with depression years later. Because that's how depression begins, by pushing down your feelings. So it's not a question of being permissive and tolerating unacceptable behaviors. By the way, discipline, the word itself, we always confuse it with punishment. But what does the word discipline means? What's a disciple? A disciple is somebody who follows you. Why do they follow you? Because they feel loved by you. So that the way you discipline children is by building a safe relationship in which they develop self-regulation and they know that they can move through these emotions. I highly recommend, if you haven't read my book, Hold On To Your Kids, it's the brilliant work of a psychologist friend of mine, Gordon Neufeld, and I highly recommend you read it because Gordon is such a brilliant child psychologist. I think it's going to change your parenting. I think it's going to really transform your capacity to understand your child. I hope so. It's the most important mission in my life at the moment. I get that. And by the way, let me ask you one more question. At the time that you're having this difficulty with your child, I'm not going to ask you for any details, but... Was there some stress happening in your life, in your wife's life, in your relationship, or anything like that? Yes, a lot. Okay, that's what the kid was reacting to. They're like little antennas in that way, aren't they? Oh yeah, they're hooked in. They're completely hooked in. We talk about children acting out. Look at that word acting out. When I use the word acting out and you think of a child, what comes to your mind? What kind of behavior? Tantrums. Exactly. But let's look at the word in its actual meaning. What does it mean to act out? To act out means to portray in behavior something you haven't got the words to say in language. Children are acting out their emotional needs because they have no words for them. We can react to the behavior or we can actually download with our superior insight and wisdom the emotional dynamics that the kid is actually acting out. And this whole culture, including Peterson, and not just him, but a whole lot of psychologists and so-called parenting experts are all about how to deal with the behavior rather than what's underneath the behavior. What's the frustration that's driving the child? Your child's frustration was that he was living in a tense environment and his own needs weren't being met. That's what needs to be addressed. Yeah, I think that's right. And by the way, I, I, I'm not saying this critically. Yeah, no, 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 no. I'm not taking it that way. As anybody who reads my books will know, I've made every mistake in the book as a parent. And when I say every mistake in the book, I mean every mistake in my own books. I've made them, you know, and sometimes even after I wrote the books. So I'm in no position to criticize somebody else. I'm just pointing out what the reality is. Look, the reason I'm talking about these things with you is because I think (laughs) there are a lot of people who are experiencing them themselves, you know, trying to raise kids or trying to figure out their own freaking lives. Yeah. And caught up in their own thought loops and destructive patterns and trying to break out of them. And this is something I think is universal. And so I I think it helps to just talk openly and honestly about it and hope that it's in service to someone listening. Absolutely. And, And the other caveat I would add is 
don't judge yourself harshly if you made these mistakes because you didn't know any better. So drop the guilt, but take responsibility for the future. That's my advice to parents. And I'm talking about a parent who's been through a lot of parental guilt, so I know what that feels like. Something I appreciate that you do at the end of the book is you know, you're pretty open about the fact that you're more comfortable diagnosing the problem than offering some way out of it because it's not that easy. This is true. I have to interrupt on the social level, you know, on an individual level. Okay. There's a lot of advice I do give in this book to people. I think there's a lot that people can do. How to change society. This is where I say I'm better at diagnosis than at prescription. So if you're someone listening to all this and you're maybe either overwhelmed or unclear about what to do about something like our culture that is so much bigger than the individual. What do you say to someone who understands all of this, but feels embedded in a system they can't escape, in a culture they can't escape, who is trying to be in the world without being of the world? What do you recommend in terms of practices? Sure. So that's been an age-old question in human life, is how can you be in the world without being of the world in the sense of taking on its values and prerogatives and, and demands and expectations? At the very end of the book, I quote the great psychologist Abraham Maslow, who actually looked at people who were self-actualized, who were through themselves. They had a groundedness and a peace about them. And he found about these people that they weren't hostile to their society, but they also didn't accept their values automatically. They kept their own sense of who they were and what they would absorb and what they wouldn't and what they would value and what they wouldn't. So that's what I call authenticity. So you can be authentic even in the midst of an inauthentic culture. And in this book, there are quite a few chapters guiding people towards my particular fashion, which is certainly not exclusive, you know, towards authenticity, to regaining that self that we lost when we're traumatized in the first place. When you regain that authenticity, you're still in this culture, but you're no longer under its sway. It no longer pulls the strings that dominate your behaviors and your thought patterns and your emotions. Many practices can support that. Certainly, self-inquiry, I call it compassion inquiry. It's a method that I teach. Other healing modalities, such as internal family systems, such as uh, neurosensory programming, somatic experiencing. So a whole lot of healing modalities out there guiding people back to themselves. What doesn't help is simply dealing with the symptoms. So things like cognitive behavior therapy, I don't think much of. They can help with particular problems, but they don't transform anybody because they don't even understand trauma. Then there are spiritual practices, such as I think many of your listeners will be familiar with. Meditation, yoga, mantras, dancing, whirling. Then there's creativity, art, music, writing, poetry. In other words, self-expression, if you do that consciously, can be transformative. Then there's this little thing out there called nature, where <laughs> where things are still, when we haven't managed to screw it totally up, things are still in harmony, things are still, are what they are, they're still themselves, we can connect with that. Commitment to others, in a conscious sense, not submitting to others, but a commitment to serving a community, making a difference on a whatever scale you can. All of these practices are available to all of us. How to transform society as a whole, I think that has to begin with what I call disillusionment. And people often say, oh, I got disillusioned, it's terrible. My response is, would you rather be illusioned or disillusioned? Would you rather have a 
a view of the world that's unrealistic or do you want to see things as they are? And one of the intentions behind this book was to show people, people, this is how things are. Let's get it. And then let's start thinking about how to make it different. Well, I was going to ask you as a final question, and this is such a big, expansive book, what was the most important thing or message you wanted to communicate? But maybe it's that. I wanted people to see themselves in context. I want them to understand themselves compassionately and realistically in the world that we live in. That's what I wanted. Well, I have to say, what you're doing, this work, it's important and necessary, and it's wonderful to have this space to talk about it. This is partly therapy for me. I, I hope it was useful for listeners who I have to believe are dealing with the same challenges that I am. And so I think it's a, a public service to talk about these things. Well, I thank you for your honesty here and, and your welcome and your openness to my ideas. All right. The book is The Myth of Normal, Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture. Dr. Gabor Mate, what a pleasure. Thanks for doing this. Likewise. Thank you very much. Eric Janikas is our producer. Amy Drozdowska is our editor. Patrick Boyd engineered this episode. Alex Overington wrote our theme music. And A.M. Hall is the boss. That was a little different. I don't normally do therapy in front of a couple hundred thousand people on a podcast, but that's kind of the way that went down. As I said in the show, I don't think the sorts of problems I'm dealing with are unique to me in any way. So I hope that some of you got something useful out of that. This book struck a nerve with me and I really, truly can't recommend it highly enough. Anyway, let us know what you think. Drop us a line at the gray area at vox.com. And if you appreciated this episode, please share it with your friends, family, anyone who you think might get something useful out of it. New episodes drop on Mondays and Thursdays. Listen and subscribe.